your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and this morning we'll be in verses 12 and 13. We're kind of working our way through this incredible Gospel. We're in what's called the Prologue, verses 1 through 18, and we're kind of taking our time as we work through the Prologue, and then when we get to the narrative portions of John, we'll kind of move along at a faster pace, but I just thought we would milk this section for all it's worth. It's really an introduction to the entire book, and a lot of the themes that are covered here John, the Apostle John, will cover throughout the Gospel of John. And so what you'll kind of notice is in the prologue, I'll give a lot of points, and then I'll kind of support that with other places in John where you'll see that lived out. And such is true today, as I've entitled this message as, Have You Been Born Again? John chapter 1, we're just looking at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a Savior that leads us, that you are our shepherd. We are your sheep. And so we pray that on this day, God, you would awaken our hearts to what it means to be a child of God. Father, I pray that today you would speak your truth into the life's of those who've gathered here, that we may know Christ and live life eternally. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you been born again? What does it mean to be born again? I mean, we live in a society where really that phrase of being born again is mocked by many celebrities. It's made fun of by multiple sitcoms and movies, and it's totally misunderstood by our culture. Most people in our day think of being born again as some type of old-school, fundamental, out-of-touch Christian talk. They, they don't really understand what it's all about. There's no context for being born again in our culture other than you hear maybe somebody at work or Somebody in the family gets born again, and everybody else rolls their eyes in disbelief and a sigh of disappointment. Did you hear what happened to Jimmy? No. What happened? Well, he got born again. He saw the light. He got religion. He's gone off the deep end. He's lost his marbles. He's now going to subscribe to that hellfire and brimstone stuff. And everybody at work's like, oh, no. He got born again. He saw the light. And it's just something that our culture really mocks and kind of makes fun of. Most unbelievers feel rather uncomfortable talking about or even trying to understand what does it mean to be born again. And what I found is some of that negative towards born again theology has spilled over into the Christian church to where most Christians I know even sometimes hesitate to say with boldness and with gratitude, I've been born again. I mean, just think about it. When's the last time you were at work you were talking to an unbeliever, and you with pride in your heart towards the Lord, and gratitude, right, said, I'm born again. Or how many of you kind of avoid that particular phraseology because it sounds a little too churchy, and it sounds a little bit too baptistic, and it sounds a little bit too radical, and you don't want your friends at work to roll their eyes and think that you've gone nuts. Well, it's time that we redeem this phrase that we need to be born again. Right? To be born again, simply put, is to have the life of God in the soul of a man. The new birth is the sovereign creation of a spiritual life down in the once barren womb of the human heart. In other words, we are born with a vacuum. 
We are born empty. We are born spiritually dead. We are born without the spiritual life of God in us. But when we are born, we have physical life, but we do not have spiritual life. Jesus says in John 3, 7, you must be born again. The new birth is the impregnation of the human heart with the life of Christ placed there by the spirit of the living God. It is God creating spiritual life, an abiding life, an abundant life within the empty vacuum of the human heart. It is the conception of new life in a man or a woman's heart, whereby the Spirit of God comes upon the nature of man and redeems that nature to the glory of God. The new birth is the resurrection of one who is spiritually dead. To be born again is to believe in the person and work of Christ and to walk in newness of life. To be born again is the impartation of eternal life into our once empty soul. This is what it means to be born again, and this is the greatest miracle that God is still doing today. He's still performing this work. Every conversion of every sinner is a miraculous work of God where that individual is born again. It is the most life-changing experience that you could ever have. To be born again happens instantaneously, meaning that it happens in a moment in time. You may not know the exact moment that you were born again, but to rest assured, being born again is not a process. It's not something you work toward. It's not an accumulation of good works. There was a point in time when you were blind, but now you see. There was a point in time when you were lost, but now you've been found. There was a point in time when you were dead, but now you've been made alive. This is a supernatural work of God. We could never do this for ourselves. This is something that only God can do. This new birth is the eternal work that affects us at our deepest level in our soul. It is not something that just puts a shine on our outward veneer and the facade of our lives. It is something deep and down in the heart of the soul where the life of God comes to indwell and the person of Christ comes to take up residence within us. It is indeed an eternal work, which means once you've been born, you cannot be unborn. You've been born again, you will be believing in the Savior until the day that you die. This is eternal life that comes and resides within us. And so we have now a heavenly being living in us even while we were still, are still living on earth. To be born again is to be saved. To be born again is to be redeemed. To be born again is to be justified. To be born again is to be given eternal life. And so I ask you again this morning, have you been born again? Is it something you feel uncomfortable talking about? Is it something you kind of laugh about and think that's for radical Christians? You could be a young child in this room this morning or a teenager. My question to you would be, have you been born again? You could be a student at the master's university, and I would still ask you the question, have you been born again? You could be uh, older than all those other ages in the middle of your life, in the prime of your life, and my question would be to you, have you been born again? You could be a senior saint, or so you thought, and my question to you would still be, have you been born again? 
you've not been born again, you've not yet been saved. And so this morning, we're talking about this subject of being born again. We're simply talking about the nature of your soul being changed from death to life. Has that happened to you this morning? Are you here today? Has the vacuum of your heart been filled with God's love? Have you tasted of the goodness of God? Have you been set free from all of your guilt and shame? Have you received Christ as a free gift? Have you a personal relationship with your creator? Do you know the Lord's? Are you feasting at his table? This morning, as we talk about being born again, I want to simply just give you a four-part outline that describes this in more detail as we look at verses 12 and 13. And the first part here on your outline, if you are taking notes, is number one, you must receive Jesus. You must receive Jesus. Notice again in verse 12, it says, but all who did receive him. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a qualification by which you must be born again. And the first qualification here in verse 12 is you must receive him. You must take him in. And if you'll notice in the verses right before verse 12, what last week's sermon really was, was how the true light, verse 9, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives light to everyone, either to save them or where they step out in further darkness, he came into the world. That's the Lord Jesus. He is now in the world. And in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The evil system of this world does not know Christ. Furthermore, in verse 11, he came to his own. We talked last week, how I think that's a reference to he came as God to humankind and yet his own people received him not. His own people did not receive him. I told you last week, I believe that to be a reference to he came to the Jewish nation. Jesus came as a Jew to save Jews. Salvation is first for the Jew and then also for the Greek. And while he came to his own people from their own blood, they rejected him. They did not believe in Christ. They had him crucified on a cross. And that's where we ended last week's sermon is it basically the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we have a little bit more hope as now we turn, notice verse 12, the first word, the conjunction, but this is the fulcrum by which the whole passage turns. While there was many who rejected him, he came to his own, but his own received him not, but all, to all who did receive him. And so now's the idea of that you and I, as most of us here in this room are most likely Gentile of origin, not Jewish of origin, have the opportunity to be grafted in. in fact, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 11, just to be reminded of this whole point here is while Jesus first came to his own, his own received him not, he then turns his ministry publicly to Gentiles and those of every race and of every tribe and of every people and openly invites us all to come in. And in, in Romans chapter 11, Paul captures this idea through this divine illustration of a olive tree and the Gentile believer being grafted in. Romans 11 verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So again, he's talking about some of the branches, some of the Jewish people, some of those that were part of the olive tree, those branches were broken off. They rejected Christ. And now you as a wild olive shoot have the opportunity to be grafted in the root of God's love. Verse 18, but do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. 
And so he's saying to believing Gentiles, don't be arrogant. Don't think that, oh, well, I would never reject Christ. He came to his own. His own received him not. What a sad story. The Jewish people, they have problems, you know, but I'm a Gentile. So I'm okay. I'm grafted in, and I'm better than that. He's warning them. He said, don't think that you're better. You could also be taken out, right? Verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. He's saying the only reason that you're grafted in is because you have received faith. It's because of your faith. It's not because of your good works. It's not because you're a Gentile. It's not because somehow you made enough effort that God chose to save you. It's because of a God-given faith that you can be brought in. For if God, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And it's just kind of a warning that we shouldn't get so spiritually proud that as Gentiles we haven't rejected Christ, if you are a believer, but that the Jews did. And this kind of leads us to, again, the first subpoint there under number one, A, are you willing to take Jesus in? That's what it means when he says that you must receive him. Are you willing to take him in? The word receive means to include in an experience. It means to take up. It means to take someone or something in. And this word receive is used in the Gospel of John in a couple of other contexts. And I want you to maybe just look at them real quick. Look at John chapter 6. This word receive, to take him in, is used the night that Jesus was walking on the water. And in John six nineteen, we see the same word being used here where we read, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid, verse 21, then they were glad to, what, take him into the boat. They were glad to receive him, same word. They were glad to receive Jesus into the boat. Are you willing to receive Jesus into your boat, so to speak? Are you willing to take him in? Are you willing to invite him into your life and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? For in order to be born again, according to verse 12, you must receive him. You have to receive him into your life, into your heart. I see I have a little competition up here on the stage. So um, you guys are going to have to be mature and ignore that, all right? Don't be like the kids, all right? And the kids in youth group, oh, you know, be like the adult that you are, right? Did it fly out already? Is it still behind me? It, oh, it went out? Okay. Oh, here he comes. We're going to close the door. I got it real quick. I'm going to beat you to it. Woo! Thanks, Jeff. All right. Ready? The bird sent from heaven. Maybe that's a message. Maybe that bird was for you. But you need to be born again. That's what the bird's saying, all right? But anyway... The, 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 point, the point that we're saying is that, you know, sometimes as those who are Calvinistic, we might say something like, well, you don't have to receive Christ. What's all this talk about, have you received Christ into your heart? Well, I would say to you, well, that's a biblical concept, is it not? That you have to take him in. Now, I would also say to you, you can't. In and of yourself, you have no power, no ability. You're dead. But when God makes you alive, he gives you this, this, he changes you, right, to that point to where, in a sense, at least from a human perspective, you want to take him in. The second blank says there, are you willing to accept Jesus as being from the Father? And again, I, I don't prefer that word accept. Sometimes I might say, you know, that's kind of wishy-washy to say, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? You know, that, that's usually 
maybe not how I would prefer to phrase it, but at the same time, I appreciate this word receive, and I think that's part of what it's saying. Are you willing to accept the fact, and notice what I say here, are you willing to accept Jesus as being from the Father? This was really the big problem with the Jews. They did not want to receive Jesus. They rejected him. They were not willing to accept Jesus as being from the Father. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and in verse 42, Jesus says, but I know that you do not have the love of God Within you, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. There's the word receive again. You did not take me in. I I came in my Father's name. In other words, I came as saying, I'm from God. I am connected to Yahweh. I am that I am sent me. I and the Father are one, and yet you did not receive me. You did not take me in. You did not accept me as being from the Father. So if another comes, he says, though, in 543, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You'll take somebody else in. You'll believe their teaching. You'll listen to the teaching of Abraham. You'll listen to the teaching of Moses. You'll listen to the teaching of David. Why won't you listen to me? I come in that same line of godly prophets, but I'm not just a prophet. I'm the high priest. I'm the son of God. I'm God become flesh. I have come in the name of the Father, and yet you have not received me. Why? Because the Jews were blind. These unbelieving Jews were deceived. They loved their sin. Their main sin was spiritual pride. They liked their system. They enjoyed their power. They liked their control. This is what's happening. The the, the, the same thing's happening today. We may not be struggling in this room, most of us, since we're not from a Jewish culture. We may not be struggling with, well, I'm I'm not into the old covenant system. Yeah, you're in in your, your own system. You know, I mean, you're into plurality. You're into, let's be a little bit more relaxed about being so specific about taking Jesus as who he is. You're into, our culture at least is into saying something popular like, oh, I accept Jesus or I believe in Jesus, but they're not really following the real Jesus. They're not taking Jesus in on his own terms. They're not taking him as being from the Father. And so uh, there, there has to be this willingness to receive Christ to accept him. In fact, we could say it this way, see in your outline, are you willing to receive Jesus as a gift from heaven? Are you really are you willing to receive him as a gift from heaven? You see the problem is we kind of all have our conceptions about what we think Jesus ought to be like. And instead of receiving him as he is, as from the Father and a gift from heaven who comes from an authority, and the Bible is our authority, we like to have our own expectations. This is what the Jews were doing. They expected the Savior to be a military leader. They, accept, they expected the Savior to deliver them from the Romish oppression. They expected the Savior to somehow uh, return uh, you know, Israel to its heyday of King Solomon. That's what they expected. And yet Jesus came as a humble man born to a carpenter, showing up on a donkey as a blue-collar worker, coming to say, I am that I am. And it's amazing how we also have our own expectations of Jesus. And we don't receive him as he is from the Father, from heaven. But the truth is, you either have to take all of Jesus or you have none of him. You don't have the right to say which parts of the Bible you believe about Christ and which parts you don't. And those two cross-references I list there in John 3 and in John 6 under this point simply talk about he's a gift from heaven. Jesus comes from heaven. John answered, John 3, 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And so in order for you to be a Christian today, in order for you to be born again, that's a gift that comes ultimately from heaven 
heaven. In fact, a little bit later in John 6, he goes into this long talk about how the bread that came down from heaven, talking about the manna back in the wilderness when the Israelites had left Egypt, and, and how they would eat of that bread from heaven, the manna, and did not die. And then Jesus says this in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And so Jesus is saying, accept me for who I am. I, I am the bread of heaven. I am eternal life. And you have to receive me on my terms and on my way. So let me just ask you this morning, are you willing to receive Jesus? Not change him, not make him softer than he is, not make him louder than he is, not make him different than he is. Are you willing to take Jesus in as he is? Are you willing to receive him as a gift from heaven? Because if you're not, you will never be born again. You must receive him as he is. The second thing I would say to you this morning, the second major heading, you must believe in his name. You must believe in his name. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. To believe means to consider someone or something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Do you believe in God's word? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he worthy of your trust and the only way that you can really believe in his name would be, A, do you believe what the scriptures teach about Jesus? Do you believe what the scriptures teach about Jesus? Again, to believe in Jesus' name means to believe in his character. It means that you believe in his claims. It means that you believe in Jesus' very words. And as we're learning in the Gospel of John, there is a lot of, uh, there is not any difference really between the words of Jesus and the scripture. He was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's really no difference between what Jesus taught and in who he was. And so we have to understand here that it's a privilege for us to have a Bible in our hands and to go to the word of God that will help us understand that Jesus is from God. He was sent to be crucified on a cross for sinners like you and me and to be raised again. And this is what happens. Look at John 2. We're in John 1. Look over at chapter 2, verse 19. After Jesus cleanses the temple, the Jews demand a sign that would prove to them that, that, uh, that this temple was what Jesus said, my father's house. And they said, how can you prove it's our father's house? In John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it, is, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, notice what this says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said and they believed the what? They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed in the scripture. You, you must, if you want to be a believer today, you cannot have some type of connection with Christ and disconnect yourself from scripture. You cannot have some type of eternal life of Christ living in you and say that you don't believe that the word of God is accurate. If you are going to believe, faith cometh from hearing and hearing from the what? From the word of God. In fact, it's 1 Corinthians 15 that says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so what I'm saying is if you're going to believe in his name, you must believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. We could also say another way, number B here, uh, do you believe in the gospel of Christ? Do you believe in the gospel of Christ? 
Maybe the most famous verse in the Bible that includes this word believe, trusting in Christ is John 3.16, and rightly so. This is a, a perfect verse which really encapsulates the gospel message, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the message of the gospel. There is a holy God who created the heavens and the earth. You and I are sinful man who have committed sins against God, and we were born in iniquity, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death. And so God sent us his son, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who became our substitute, who died in our place, who was raised from the dead, so that you can receive him, so that you can repent and believe. And so my question to you this morning is, do you believe in the gospel of Christ? It's not enough just to say, I believe there's a God. It's not enough just to say, I think Jesus was a good man. It's not enough to say, well, I think Christianity is better than some other religions. No, no, no. You must believe the gospel. You must believe that God is holy, you're a sinner, Christ alone saves, and you must turn to him this day to be born again. We could also say this about the word believe. Notice how it's connected in our next point. Do you believe in the way that leads to obedience? Belief and obedience have a close connection. And if you'll look at John 3, 36, you'll see that connection here that the Apostle John gives us this, this, this vibe, if you will, about John 3, 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So just to be clear, you just have to believe. If you believe in a biblical way with trust and dependence on Christ and Him alone, then you're saved. All right? It's all about belief. That's it. All right? you, you must receive Him. You must believe in Him. But then notice in verse 36 it says, Whoever does not obey, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. It's easy, and we should infer from verse 36, that if you're not obeying the Son, then you don't have the Son. Now, obedience does not lead to eternal life. Only repentance and faith does, which is what belief is, believing, trusting in him. But if you really believe in him, then are you obeying him? Are you following him? I'm talking here about the difference between easy believism and what some call lordship salvation. Is it possible that you can take Jesus as your savior, but he's not really the Lord of your life? And the answer is no. He comes as a package. He comes that you may be saved, and that you may be sanctified. I can remember in many times in my life evangelizing, talking with somebody about Christ and maybe leading them up to a point to where you know, they're maybe ready to repent and say something equivalent to the sinner's prayer. And then I would just pause for a moment and say, wait, wait, wait a second, time out, time out. I just want to make sure you understand what, what's happening here. If you repent and turn from your sins, that means that you've got to abandon all of your sin. If you decide that you're going to follow Christ from at least a human perspective, that means you've got to abandon your whole life. That means that you're going to be dead to yourself forever. Would you be willing to do that? And so many times people say, uh, actually, no. I, I don't think I'm willing to be that radical. I mean, if you just ask me, can I say a prayer and ask Jesus in my heart, yeah, I'll do that. But to really get that radical to say he's going to control every part of my life and my being and my, my future and my actions, I'm not willing to do that, which is exactly why According to some, some research, uh, just a little bit statistics this week, I was looking at the Pew Research Center, which said that 48% of those who belong to the LGBT community claim to be Christians. I just found that a little bit interesting. 
let me be clear, I love sinners, and I want to build a relationship with sinners to show them my Savior. At the same time, if consistently somebody from an LGBT mindset or any sin was to continue in that particular habitual sin and say, well, I'm a Christian, and yet their life doesn't, isn't transformed into the grace of God, then that's not being born again. Being born again doesn't mean you keep your old way of life and you still believe in God. Being born again means your life is transformed. It means you were dead and you're made alive. It means that all of God's word needs to bear on this topic. And so we should consider verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you're, if you're not living a righteous life, this scripture says you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Because what you believe is demonstrated in, in how you live. And if how you live is completely separate than what you believe, then you're considered to be unrighteous and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And that's what's happening in the church today. People are deceived. They say, well, they said they believe in Jesus. And so what does it really matter how they live? I mean, they say they believe in God. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? And I'm saying to you that this scripture is saying, hey, don't be deceived. If you see people in the world or in the church that are not having their life conform to a Godward, born-again reality, then it may be they're not saved. And according to this scripture, it says, again, you know what it says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so I'm not here to pick on any particular sin. I'm saying any unrepentant sin will not lead you to the kingdom of heaven. And that's why the text says, the very next verse says, and such were some of you. You were like that, but you're not anymore because you've been born again. You used to live that way, but not anymore. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so anyone who is continuing in habitual sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are believing in Christ, you must believe in all of him. Now, again, if I'm talking with somebody from the LGBT community, I don't take them to 1 Corinthians 6. That's, that's not where I take them. You know, I usually just talk to them. Hey, man, how you doing? Tell me, tell me a little bit about your life. Tell me your story. Love to hear your story. I, I try to get to know people and talk with them a little bit before I pull out, you know, I'm going to pull out Leviticus and 1 Corinthians 6 and just slap it all down. No, I, I probably first just take them to the picture of Christ. Look, at G, look to Christ and be saved. And yet at the same time, I'll say, yeah, and you've got to abandon your whole life, every part of your life. Every part of your life needs to be put to death as you come into this idea of being born again. Such were some of you, but you're not anymore. All by the grace of God. And maybe one last thing on belief here, D, do you believe in a way that shows total trust? Do you believe in a way that shows total trust? Again, the word believe is the word pistuo. It could be translated as to believe, to trust, to have faith in. This is a present active participle that simply means this is an ongoing faith, an ongoing trust, an ongoing belief. And if at any time you stop believing, then it shows that you never had true faith. You can't say, well, I used to believe in God, but now I'm not so sure and still be born again. 
It just means you were never really born again. You never had genuine saving faith. The kind of believing that saves is the kind of believing that trusts in God with your life and that you walk with God throughout your life. And so John 6 and John 14 talk about a belief that trusts, that you trust that Christ is coming back for his own, that you trust that he is who he said he is, that you have confidence in him. It's in believing is an active trust in God, not just a passive mental assent. So if you want to be born again, you must receive Jesus. You must believe in his name. And third, you must be given the right to become a child of God. In other words, A there says, this is a gift that only God can give. You don't work your way into the family. You don't somehow pay money to get into the family. You don't somehow do a bunch of good things and you eventually make it to the family. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves. It is a, what? A gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. It's all about God's grace. It's an entire gift that God gives to us. And so you must be given. Notice how verse 12 again says, you must, he gave them the right. You have to have that given to you. And it says that the next blank says, this is a power that only God possesses. This is a power that only God possesses. When it says he gave the right, that word right means power. It means authority. It means capability. It's the idea of it's impossible for you to become a child of God without being given that right, without being given that power. And that power can only come from God. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is the power of God. He must give you that right. He must give you that authority to be a child of God. And C in the outline is this. This is an act that only God can do. Only God can save you. Only God can give that right. Only God can make you a child of God. Now, it's important to note that in John, the Gospel of John, it never refers to us as sons of God. Anytime it refers to us, it refers to us as children of God. Um, Anytime that it refers to the Son of God, it's a reference to Christ himself. That's the author of John. Outside of John, you'll see Paul talk about that we are sons of God, but it's always in the context of we're adopted sons of God. We're adopted into his family. When John says that we're children of God, he's emphasizing here that this is an act by which we become in God's family. We're not his son that's Christ, but we are in his family. And I love how 1 John 3, 1 says it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know is that the world did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not uh, yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Well, and we have the privilege of being the children of God. It's a gift. To be a child of God means you have full access. As a child of God, you have an awesome inheritance. As a child of God, you have a loving accountability. As a child of God, you have a full scholarship to heaven. As a child of God, you have an intimate relationship with your creator. As a child of God, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Who would not? want to receive Jesus? I mean, who would not want to believe in his name? Who would not want to have the right to become a child of God? I can't, for the life of me, 
figure it out on this side of salvation. Who would not want to exchange their miserable life filled with guilt and shame and temporal pleasures to be saved for all eternity where the old is passed away and behold, all things have become new? Who would not? Why would anybody not want to receive eternal life and be born again? Our fourth heading would be this. Number four, and we're done. You must be born again. Verse 13, notice in verse 13, there are three ways that you cannot be born again. And there is one way in which you must be born again. A, not of blood. You cannot be born again of blood. Notice how it says, who were born, not of blood. This means that it's not about your parents. It's not about your ancestors. It's not about your bloodline. It's not about your ethnicity. Again, the Jews continue to argue in Luke 3, 8, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God, uh, then John, uh, excuse me, Jesus says to them, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, don't keep claiming the bloodline. That's what the Jews were doing. Romans 9, 7 says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So again, he's saying to the Jews, just because you got the bloodline to Abraham does not mean you're saved. You must have a bloodline, spiritually speaking, to Christ. It's not about whether you are Jew or Greek, it's about being in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Galatians 3.29. You are heirs according to the promise, but you must be in Christ. And so the first part of that argument is simply, you can't be born again just because you're an ethnic Jew. It's not about blood. Not all of Israel is Israel. The second way that you cannot be born again, be nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of the flesh. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Verse 16, Romans 9, 16, I, I see this reference of nor of the will of the flesh simply being to a fleshly desire, that you have a desire that you would be born again. I'm talking here about human will, and this is where the argument comes in. Are we saved by the sovereignty of God, sovereign grace, or are we saved by our own free will? And this is the part in John where he's saying, hey, you can't be saved by your will. You're not saved by free will. How much clearer could it be? He's saying you are not saved by blood, verse 13, nor by the will of the flesh. Romans 9, 16. Again, the argument is going back and forth about salvation and how are somebody come to faith and how are they saved? Is it human will or is it the grace of God? Romans 9, 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I mean, how much clearer could it be? You're not saved by your own human will. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. Your will is enslaved to your flesh. You'll never be saved just because you want to be. You can't even want to be unless God does a work of grace in you and extends mercy to you. You can never be saved by your own human will. God will give mercy to whom he will give mercy, and he will give compassion to whom he will give compassion. Verse Romans 9, skip down to verse 20. Sometimes we don't like this argument, and so we argue back. Verse 19, uh, well, why does he say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what, is molded to its, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We're simply saying here, ultimately, you cannot be saved by your free will. Your free will gets you nowhere. You don't have a free will. Your free will is captive to your sinful nature, and it's not free, it's enslaved. You cannot be saved by your desire from a human standpoint. In fact, he says it a second time, see, nor by the will of man. You cannot be saved by the will of the flesh, nor can you be saved by the will of man. I understand the will of man there to be a little bit more of a reference to human ingenuity of religion, i.e. works. You can't be saved by doing certain things. You can't be saved by just a desire, and you can't be saved by the things that you do. The will of man is used in the context of works. And this is what Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, came to Jesus one night. And that's why he says to Nicodemus in John 3, 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You know what he's saying to Nicodemus? It's not about the covenant. It's not about you being this great teacher. That's not about your external obedience. There's no formula to it. God saves whom he saves as he wills, and it's like the wind. Nobody knows when it comes. Nobody knows where it blows. Nobody knows how it blows. It's the Spirit of God. You cannot be saved by the works of the flesh. You cannot be saved by your own effort. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we are not saved by our bloodline. It is not about our will. It is not about our works. So how are we born again? Last part of verse 13, by the will of God. If you're here today and you're born again, it's by the will of God. It's John 6, 44. Look at it with me, if you will. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Look at verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Look at John 15, 16. John chapter 15. And verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Listen to me. At the end of the day, you're born by God. It's a sovereign act of grace. So you're sitting there and you say, well, Adam, what do I do? You're saying it's all God and not me. What do I do? And my answer to you would be, Look to the cross. Look to Christ. If you come to him this day, he will by no means cast you out. Come to him today. Believe in Christ as who he is, as being sent from God, as being the savior of the world, and believe in him with your heart. Ask God to open your eyes and to do what you cannot do. I mean, isn't this the same thing when it comes to the physical birth? I mean, how many of you guys chose the day you were born? Anybody? How many of you guys helped push down the birth canal? And you said, all right, it's time, here I come. How many of you guys even remember that day? How many of you had anything to do with that day? Right? At physical birth, it's so simple. We're like, oh, yeah, that wasn't my choice. That just kind of happened. 
Well, it's the same thing with salvation. Ultimately, you don't choose. God chooses you. And when he chooses you, this is the part I want you to hear. When he chooses you, he changes you. And he begins to draw you in. And you see him for who he is. And you begin to hate your sin. And you begin to love Christ. And you begin to turn from your old ways. And you come to him. And you throw yourself at his mercy. And you say, God, save me. I'm a sinner. And I want to be born again. If you were to do that on this very day, I believe he would save you by his grace, that you would now enter into his kingdom, that you would no longer be outside of the beauty and the blessing of God, that you could on this very day be born again, not by your will, but by the will of God. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. If you did become born again today, or if you are already born again, J.C. Ryle describes this truth well. To be born again is as it were, to enter upon a new existence, to have a new mind, a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come and salvation. Christ, as he is, on his terms, and according to his conditions. If you, if you want to be born again, you can't just take part of Christ. You can't just think, oh, he seemed like a nice guy, and he went through a, you know, a, a lot of great teachings, and he went through a rough time, and he seemed like he didn't deserve what he got. No, no, that didn't work. You got to come to Christ, all of Christ, on his own, being from the Father, who says, if anyone, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's the Christ that we must come to on his terms. Number two, do you believe in a way that shows active trust in God on a daily basis? I don't care if you say you got saved at vacation Bible school. I don't care if you say you've said a sinner's prayer. I don't care if you tell me you got baptized. What I do care about is that today, that you're believing in such a way that demonstrates an active trust in God, that today he is your Lord and Savior. Because if I can't see that in your life today, or if you have no love for Christ today, how could you really be born again? Last, have you truly been born again in a way that clearly shows you are a child of God? Is it evident in your life? Is it evident in your thoughts? Is it evident in your conversation? Is it evident in how you live your life? Does it demonstrate that you have truly been born again? And so I ask you this morning, whether you be a child or a teenager or a college student or a grown man, I ask you, have you been born again? And I would beg you this day, don't leave this place this morning. Talk to the person who invited you. If you're a visitor, I'll be available after the service. Most of our uh, folks here in this service would be more than happy to talk to you about whether or not you've been born again. Have you been born again? By the grace of God, I pray that would become true in your life. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to just look at this beautiful doctrine of what it means to be born again. And I'll be the first to confess that at times in my own life, I've erred by staying away from this terminology because of how it's mocked in our culture. I pray, God, that I would never be ashamed to say I've been born again. I pray, God, I would never be ashamed to ask someone else plain and simple, have you been born again? I pray, God, that this church would always be built on the passage that we just looked at, that it's about as many as received 
him to them. He gave the power and the right to become children of God. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. I pray that you would do such a work in this church that revival would come to this city. God, I pray that you would do such a work in this church that we could not help but to share with others about what it means to be born again. I pray, God, that people would come by the ones and by the twos and by the tens and the twenties and the hundreds and give their life to Christ. I pray, God, it would all happen according to the Spirit of God that blows like the wind. And we just would ask, God, that you would blow that wind of salvation in this place, on this day, that if there would be even one person, young or old, God, in this place, that you would cause them to be born again, that you would do a sovereign work of grace, that you would bring them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that that individual at this moment in time would be able to testify of how they sat under the preaching of the word of God on a certain day where they were challenged to be born again and they were born again. Would you do that work for your glory? Would you work in our hearts? Would you allow us to talk about this and interact with one another in a way that would honor you as we consider whether or not we've truly been born again? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.